This episode of New Politics was released on the 2nd of April, 2022, and produced on the land of the Wangal and Wajuk people. Welcome to New Politics. In this episode, we look at Budget 2022 and what it means for the federal election. Has Australia become ungovernable or is incompetence a deliberate strategy? And is the Prime Minister a bully without a moral compass? We look at what a Liberal Party Senator has to say about this. I'm Eddie Djokovic, Editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, gibbering idiot. On our Patreon page, it was pointed out to us that Scott Morrison did, in fact, visit South Australia. And part of that, we thought that he hadn't. It wasn't that well reported. There was a paywalled story in The Australian. Morrison described Stephen Marshall as a quokka, the happiest animal. And I think this is why he's not being invited to many Liberal seats to campaign, because... I'm still scratching my head about what he means by all of that. Well, also, the quokka is an animal that exists on Rottnest Island in Western Australia. It's got nothing to do with South Australia, so who knows what the quokka reference was to. And thanks to our, uh, I think it was Neil on Patreon who pointed that out to us. And a big thank you to our new Patreon subscribers. Thanks for signing up. And if you'd like to support New Politics, you can support us through a Patreon subscription. It's just $5 per month for the Ruby Standard Supporter level or $10 per month for the Gold Standard Supporter level. But whether it's a subscription or if you just want to listen in, read our material online or buy a T-shirt or buy a book, it's all available at newpolitics.com.au and all of this is a good way to support independent journalism. The budget was announced this week and not only was it one of the most political ever, but it was also one of the most expensive job applications in history for the Federal Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, who was clearly angling for the leadership of the Liberal Party after the next election, win or lose. The budget seems to be funding all of those areas that the Coalition hasn't been able to fund over the past nine years or put money back into the areas that they previously cut and now they're expecting the public to be impressed by what they're offering for the future. The media has been obsessed about whether the budget will do enough to get the government re-elected or not, rather than focusing on whether the budget is good for the community and good for the economy, and using all those headline figures about tax cuts and a fuel excise reduction to see if there'll be an electoral boost in the opinion polls for the coalition. A pre-election budget is always going to be highly political and based on strategy to get a government re-elected, but has Josh Frydenberg gone a little bit too far or has he got the balance right? They've actually got very few budgets through the Senate. Partly that's they've got a minority Senate and so you've got those political issues, but mostly it's because their budgets are terrible. Their budgets are um, obviously geared to certain members of society, not relatively fairly spread around. Most prime ministers, even highly partisan ones, know that you've got to give a little bit to everybody. You might give a bit more to your friends and a bit less to the people who don't like you. 
but you've got to give a, a bit more than anybody. There were some curious omissions. No money for an independent corruption commission. A large amount of money cut from refugee services, which I suppose was to be expected. Barnaby Joyce ends the Water Commission, suddenly saying it had done its job. About the time that one of its members said that we can't make decisions on water based purely on politics, then he cuts the whole thing. So it, I think it's a budget that not expecting to go through at all, not even if they win. I think they're expecting to lose, so they've just put in a budget of this is what we want to do and you're not going to vote for us anyway, so bad luck. Here's $250 to spend at Woolworths or Harvey Norman or another one of our donors, which two tanks of petrol, really, or three, three tanks of petrol if we're being generous. It's almost an insult. I think it's interesting that even the government's big boosters have been muted on how good the budget is. Well, they were also expecting to lose the 2019 federal election. They produced a budget that also indicated that. They're possibly doing the same in 2022. But budgets should always be about the needs of the community and the economy at any given time. But the media commentary has been focused around whether the budget will be enough to get the coalition re-elected or not. And if you've got that sort of focus, it means that they're always going to miss the bigger issues and have a misunderstanding of what the real priorities of the budget actually are. Government taxing and spending affects different parts of the community in different ways. And that's why budgets are so important. But it shouldn't be like a horse race or a sporting contest, which is pretty much the way that it's been depicted by the media. And and it certainly shouldn't be based on just political outcomes. But this budget is all about the big announcements. And we have to remember that what they claim they will spend is not actually what they will spend in the future. And there's a whole range of mathematical trickery comparing projected figures rather than actual figures, using figures that use actual numbers rather than figures adjusted for inflation. And this has primarily been done to compare coalition performance with Labor performances when they were last in government in 2013. So essentially, it's an exercise in spinning the numbers in the most favourable way possible and placing all the priority onto the re-election of the coalition. And as, as I said, this is what all political parties do, but this one seems to be more political than previous budgets. And there's also a $78 billion deficit in this budget. And we've always maintained that debt in itself isn't a problem. Spending cycles need to fit into the circumstances of the times. And there's also that question about what this debt is actually being used for. And most of the debt that has been accumulated over the past nine years hasn't been very well targeted. This is the old smoke and mirrors process where money has been shifted from one program and then announced as new money, such as the Resilience Effects Defence Space Intelligence Cyber and Enablers Program. And that's a bit, a bit of a mouthful there, but the acronym for that is Red Spice. And that's $9.9 billion, which has been shifted from the Department of Defence and announced as a new program. And there, there was also the recent announcements, such as the creation of a dry dock facility in Perth at the cost of $4 billion. And that isn't actually mentioned at all in the budget papers. And Frydenberg has also managed to find funding for all of those things that they had great difficulty in finding the money for over the past nine years since they've been in office. And that includes schools, health, mental health, aged care, Indigenous affairs, and DIS. And in many of these cases, they were simply replacing funding that they'd previously cut. And in his budget speech, Josh Frydenberg kept on referring to programs being 
fully funded and record level funding. And, and I'm sure the people who are on the NDIS program might dispute that idea of fully funded programs. But there's a wide range of aspirations that are just being made that just seem to be quite unrealistic. The idea is that wage rises are going to outpace CPI increases over the next three years, even though this hasn't happened over the past decade. But a lot of these announcements are made without any underlying analysis to support the claims. And it can be argued that if unemployment rates go down, that that puts pressure for wages to rise. But a lot of this just seems to be more wishful thinking than anything else. It's a budget designed to distract, really. I think they like it when we point out its failings, because we're not talking about other more serious failings. This budget is never going to fly. It's not going to get passed. Now, to be fair, a lot of the budget is just cutting and pasting from last year. Your salaries, your contractors, your departmental rents and administrative costs just go across. And it's really a chance to bring in new things or reform old things. You cut certain parts of the budget. They cut the ABC continually, continually. They cut universities continually, continually. They cut anything that might become a potential critic of them rather than encourage and foster debate and learn from that debate and move through that debate and engage in that debate. They don't want debate. They just want to remove as much of it as they can by and shovel as much money out of the government's coffers and into their mates and into their own pockets as quickly as possible. This has become clear. It's a very simplistic argument, but we're dealing with simple people. They're not subtle thinkers. They're not nuanced thinkers. They're not people with a big vision of what government should be, what Australia should be. When you get glimpses of what they think Australia should be, it's pretty horrifying and not inclusive and not terribly smart and not terribly good. Well, I guess one thing that they're trying to do is make it sound or seem like they're being inclusive, but not actually being inclusive. And I guess that's why we saw all of those different funding announcements for all of these different programs and areas that they just haven't funded over the past eight or nine years. But just looking at the budget in a little bit more detail, there also seems to be a lot of specialist funding announcements. And there's the First Home Buyers Scheme that sends out the message that this is all available to all first home buyers, but it's only a carefully targeted program that benefits a small amount of people. It's the same with the support for the single women with families to purchase a home. But again, it supports only a very, very small amount of people. And even though the headline announcement makes it seems like Everyone's going to benefit from this in this particular target group. And, and of course, it's good that first home buyers and single women with families or women fleeing from domestic violence, they're actually supported, but it's only a small amount of people who will receive the support. And it's also, these two budget items were announced in the last budget and the budget before. So it's obvious that it's all about getting the announcement. But the point is that they what they try and do is send up the flare into the sky gets people interested in the program, then people think, oh, well, I should probably vote for that to get that benefit. But when the time comes to actually apply for the program in the future, they'll find out that they're actually ineligible for that program. And just to extend the impression of the budget being better or bigger than actually what it actually was, it was a time for fancy graphs, statistics and acronyms such as Red Spice, which I mentioned before, and meaningless references to 
employment and real GDP relative to pre-pandemic levels. And and apparently Australia is leading the world in these statistics, even though no one is really sure what these statistics mean or what they relate to. So a lot of these figures are trying to spin the budget in a positive light. And all political parties do this, but there's many programs and announcements that are targeting marginal seats. Now, it doesn't seem to be as severe as the pork barrelling that occurred in the 2019 election, but I guess we won't find out about any colour-coded documents or sports rorts until after the election, and by then it will be just just too late. And one other thing that I noticed is that 40% of infrastructure funding for New South Wales is being provided for the seat of Dobell, and that's $1.3 billion. And in South Australia, $2.2 billion is being allocated in the seat of Boothby. And Both of these seats are marginal seats held by the Liberal Party and it's seats that they definitely need to hang on to. So that's a lot of infrastructure funding for just two seats, $3.5 billion. And it's just a question of how viable this funding is and how useful it is or how useful it's going to be looking into the future. It's a government that has been blatant in its pork barrelling and doesn't see anything wrong with it. They see that as representing their interests. But there's a point where the government becomes much more of a national body. And I think people are starting to notice this. Now, of course, for the people of Dobell, that if it ever comes through, which it won't, because how much have they announced that has never gone through? And I guess they're hoping that the people of Dobell, for example... And hello to all our listeners in Dobell. I'm not slighting you. I'd be the same in in any marginal seat. They're hoping that the people of Dobell are after that money so much that they will give them another chance. Whether that will happen or not, I mean, they've promised a one-off $800 payment to all aged care workers till you looked at the details. And it turned out that it was pro rata, that it was taxable, and that 98% of them haven't got it and quite a large percentage of them weren't even eligible for it. I wonder how many times you can make a very promising announcement and be believed and then not deliver before you start to feel the electoral consequences. Well, budgets do have to take into account a number of different issues. So it's not just the funding of infrastructure in the seat of Dobell or the seat of Boothby. There's a lot of politics that goes into it and there's personal aspirations as well. But the other consideration that we do need to take into account is that this isn't just a budget to get the coalition re-elected, but it's also the most expensive pitch ever for an aspiring leader of a political party. Josh Frydenberg is an openly Thatcherite member of the parliament and having large budget deficits and spending so much money must be a total affront to these Thatcherite ideals. But he also speaks openly about his leadership aspirations. But for some reason, the media never raises leadership speculation within the Liberal Party. That just seems to be reserved for the Labor Party alone. But The budget is also about positioning himself as the leader of the Liberal Party after this election, which means either as the Prime Minister or the leader of the opposition. And personally, I don't think Scott Morrison will survive as Prime Minister. If the Coalition does win the next election, I don't think that he'll be there for too long. He'll probably be challenged for the position and forced to resign. And if he does lose the election, he'll more than likely leave Parliament altogether. Prime Ministers who lose an election or lose a leadership challenge they 
generally don't hang around for very long. The last Prime Minister to lead their party after losing an election was Gough Whitlam in 1975. Malcolm Fraser, Paul Keating, Kevin Rudd, they all resigned the leadership and also resigned from Parliament after they lost their respective elections. And the only issue with this idea is that there's a possibility Josh Frydenberg might actually lose his seat to an independent candidate. It is unlikely, but we can see that the budget has got this threefold political ambition. Save the government, save the seat of Kuyong for Josh Frydenberg and enable him to have a chance of becoming the next leader of the Liberal Party. Frydenberg, of course, has somehow been a worse treasurer than Scott Morrison, who is somehow a worse treasurer than Joe Hockey, who is up to that point the worst treasurer we'd ever had. Frydenberg, I was surprised to find out that he turned 50 this year. I thought he was much younger. Uh, he, he doesn't have the bearing, the maturity, the wisdom of an older man. He doesn't act terribly experienced and he acts quite immaturely at times. I know I said last week that I try and look at the person behind before I say nasty things, but I would say this to Josh Frydenberg's face. These are people who really don't deserve courtesy. So that he is seen as the next leader of the great and venerable Liberal Party that, if we trace it from 1901, has included giants like Deacon, like Menzies, like Bruce. But nearly all of them were, with the exception of McMahon, had some kind of substance. Gorton was problematic. Holt was problematic, but we didn't really get to see Holt because he, he died too early be- before we'd seen him really grow into the role. Lyons was deeply respected by a lot of the populace, uh, even though he'd been a Labour rat. That didn't work against him in the way that it worked against uh, Billy Hughes, for example. We ha- and Malcolm Fraser, of course, was loved by his side at the time, later hated by his side, but that's that's a whole other debate for a whole other time. But most of them were substantial and interesting figures. Frydenberg isn't. He has less somehow less charisma than Scott Morrison, who I think would be confused by most people by a block of wood. Did they have a have a lineup? And they don't even have that everyman charisma of John Howard. Howard wasn't this wildly charismatic figure like, say, Bob Hawke. And, of course, he didn't want to be. But he did have a certain kind of appeal, I guess is a, probably a better word, that even people who weren't terribly interested could at least acknowledge. Of course, Josh Frydenberg needs the 3 to 4% bump that a uh, leader of a major party gets you. I suspect he would have preferred it before the election and that he's really hoping that preferences will flow his way. And the preferences is something that I'm not prepared to predict on, but I I think he's in deep trouble. And, of course, whenever there's a budget, there's also a budget reply speech. And Anthony Albanese outlines some of the things that Labor would do if it's able to win government at the next election. And and that includes a major reform of the aged care sector, promising to invest $2.5 billion dollars into the sector, cheaper childcare, boosting wages, greater investment in infrastructure, training and education, and all of this dovetailing into easing cost of living pressures. Now, 
The responsibilities for an opposition leader, they're different to the Treasurer. Most of it goes into painting a picture of what they'll actually do if they manage to get into government, and and that's pretty much what Albanese has done. Oppositions don't have access to Treasury resources, or they're not even required to produce detailed figures, but essentially Albanese has ticked all the boxes you'd expect from a leader of the opposition. My fellow Australians, I have unlimited faith in our country's potential. And if I have the honour of serving as your Prime Minister, I can promise you this, I will work as hard as I can every day to see that potential realised. I will act with integrity, I will lead with responsibility and I will treat you with respect. We've been through a tough couple of years, but I know our best days can be ahead of us. I will work with you to build a better future. And I say to this Prime Minister, who himself declared months ago he was campaigning and not governing, call the election, call it now, and let the people of Australia decide. And the end of the budget reply speech, it was almost like the beginning of a, an election campaign launch. And Albanese was pleading for the Prime Minister to call the election. So whatever the case is, that's more than likely the end of this term of Parliament and it's just a waiting game to see when the election is going to be called. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through YouTube, SoundCloud and Amazon Music, or find us at newpolitics.com.au and you can now support New Politics through Patreon. Up next... Has Australia become too difficult to govern, or do we have deliberate incompetence as part of an ideological obsession? There has been some speculation that Australia has become ungovernable and this is all in the context of trying to understand why the Morrison government has been so incompetent over the past three years and it's hard to know whether this speculation is just trying to explain away poor performances and justify them or whether it is a genuine attempt to look at the political system that we do have in place and see if it's working in the best interests of the community. And we also have to take into account that this level of incompetence could also be by design as well. But you do look around and think, hang on, is this the best that we can do in politics? And that goes for all sides of politics as well. But there has to be a better way of getting the right sort of people into politics. And of course, democracy is based on those people who do turn up and put their hand up to participate. But are the problems that we're having based around the type of political system that we have, the type of people that are attracted to that system? Is it the politicians, the media, the hangers on? What are the issues behind all the problems that we do have in politics at the moment? And do we need to start looking at something different? The first thing I want to look at is the money we pay. Years ago, I remember being in a political meeting somewhere and the subject of reducing politicians' pay came up. And a very earnest gentleman got up and said, if you pay peanuts, you get monkeys. We're paying really good money and we're getting baboons. I think we need to look at 
reforming the pay. Now, I'm not saying that politicians shouldn't be paid well for what they do. It, it, it is an extremely hard job. It's an extreme, or it should be an extremely hard job. Done well, it's an extremely hard job. We don't want ministers like Richard Colbeck, who seem to do nothing, go to the cricket in times of crisis. But we need to find some way to discourage bad people getting into politics. I'm not quite sure how you do that because it's a job that attracts a certain element that you don't want. One thing we should look at is fixed terms. You shouldn't have people in the seat for more than two or three terms. I think we need Senate reform. There are days where I think the upper houses should be abolished. In all fairness, I think they do, done properly, they do provide some useful checks and balances, but also the committee systems where parties, varying interests, get to work together in a fairly amicable way can actually get stuff done and, of course, there's a house of review. But there are days where I think you look at some members of the upper house and you think, what are you doing there? You have no business being and you've done nothing and your contribution to Australian politics is probably best served by your removal from Australian politics. The other argument against it, of course, is that we are a fairly overgoverned country, three tiers of government with a lot of overlap and a lot of uh, demarcation issues. I'm not quite sure how we fix that either because while it seems easy to get rid of the states, there are plenty of people in each state who would not want to see their state go. Oh, well, I guess there's a whole range of issues that we can take into account. But as you referred to before, politics is hard work and it is difficult or it should be difficult and it should be hard work. And it's easy for the public to take pot shots at politicians about how much they're being paid or whatever the case might be. Personally, I don't care what they're actually paid and I don't think that the payment is what attracts people into politics, but they turn up for all these different other reasons. So it's easy for the public to take pot shots. It's easy for commentators like us to outline all the flaws of certain political parties and the people that make up some of those political parties. And there's probably no question about this, that many politicians, if not all of them, do work hard and try to achieve at least something. But our main gripe and our main issue is one of competence. Now, the same political system has existed in Australia since 1901, and expectations might have changed over that time, and the speed of politics might have changed as well. But it's the same system, except for a few constitutional amendments here and there, it's the same system that we've had for over 120 years. The issue is that people who are in politics or are attracted to politics, people such as Barnaby Joyce, well, he's someone that shouldn't be in government. Angus Taylor, Peter Dutton, maybe even Scott Morrison on the other side of politics. And Labor hasn't been in federal office for almost a decade, but someone like Mark Arbib should never have been in government or in politics. And in state politics, people like Eddie Obeid and Ian MacDonald and Probably half of the New South Wales Labor Party front bench shouldn't have been anywhere near the government benches all the way back in 2011. So it's a question of what needs to change. Is it the party structures? Is it the constitution itself, which is difficult to change? Does the media need to go through some sort of metamorphosis and become a better gatekeeper for the public interest? But I think at the heart of it is that question of how do we get the right sort of people into politics? I'm actually somewhat of a fan of the Australian Constitution. I think it needs a couple of important reforms. 
need to acknowledge our Indigenous peoples in a much more significant way than what it does. And I think that's easily done through referenda. I'm a fan of documents that are able to adapt with the times. I'm I'm not in favour of a Bill of Rights because rights change. Uh, And we can look at the right to bear arms in the United States. You obviously don't want people carrying guns around like in the United States. With a couple of key changes to the Constitution, I think it's a fairly useful document because it's open. It was it reflected the time, but it can also reflect today with a couple of changes. I think we've got to get rid of the bit about head of state too. But that, of course, is a debate that we've tried a couple of times and hasn't got up yet. But that's another obvious change. But really, they're minor things. In terms of this is how laws should be formed, And these are the values which are kept fairly loose and adaptable under which laws could be made. The Australian constitution is okay. So we can look at those constitutional reforms and constitutional issues, and I guess this is one factor that could go into the constitution, but I think it's also an issue of the executive having too much control. Effective parliament has always been based on the goodwill of people that make up that parliament. And there's always been the ratbags and the corrupt politicians in parliament throughout history, but it just seems like it's become worse over the past 25 years or so. And that's why we have disproportionate amount of funding going into marginal seats. That's why we have money being funneled off into the Cayman Islands for water licence sales in New South Wales. And that's why, seemingly, in my opinion, we seem to have so much corruption in politics at the moment. There's almost no rules and almost no repercussions when those rules are, are broken or breached. And in the recent budget, you referred to this before, David, that there is a line item for the Independent Commission Against Corruption. And it's $0 for this year and $0 for next year. And that doesn't necessarily mean that money can't be or won't be spent on this commission, but it's very unlikely. And this is the commission that was promised in December 2018, and we're still waiting for it, but it's unlikely to happen at all if the coalition wins the next election. And And in so many other sectors in this world, there are standards, there are protocols, independent authorities, corporate regulations, but very little in federal parliament. And sure, we've got the Senate estimates committees and there's parliament question time, which is an absolute joke at the moment. But you can virtually do anything as a member of this government and get away with it. And that's what needs to change. There has to be more scrutiny of the political process than just a visit to the ballot box once every three years. It's like obeying a red light if there's no policeman around and you run a red light there will be no consequence and if you have an accident you can claim oh no the light was green and stay on that unless film or other such evidence comes up their flouting of convention has been distressing for someone who has studied the systems of three or four countries and countries where convention is absolutely key to the running of the place It's been absolutely devastating. Morrison should have resigned at least three times by now. And that he is still there is a blight on the Australian constitution and a disgrace. And I would say that to his face if he ever came on the show, which he never will because he's not going to win the next election, I think. (laughs) And if he wins the next election, he can come on the show, but he's not going to get an easy time of it like he does on Channel 7 or Channel 9. We need to work out what conventions are important to us, lying to parliament, not doing your basic job as a minister. And I don't want to accuse any minister of not having a hard job. You're still managing thousands of thousands of people, for example. And the worst thing about managing people is managing people, 
We know this. Under the convention, you get all the credit for the good stuff, even though the public service has done it, but you also have to take all the blame for the bad stuff, which is generally down to the minister. But not always. That's the convention. Yep, you can have all the credit you like, but the second something goes wrong, you're the responsible minister and you step down or you, you wear the consequences. Richard Colbeck, Josh Frydenberg, Peter Dutton, Suzanne Lay, all of them should have resigned for misleading parliament, for improper behaviour. Christian Porter, my goodness, how could I have forgotten that? Bridget McKenzie, none of them should be in parliament at all, but they just flouted convention and were supported by it, by the leadership of their respective parties. Barnaby Joyce, I'm going to stop with this... Uh, this podcast will just be a long list of every minister just about. Well, speaking of long lists, I usually associate top 10 lists with popular music, but there's a series of top 10 charts at the moment, and that's the top 10 least trusted politicians in Australia. And you mentioned some of those names before, and they're all conservative politicians with Scott Morrison and Peter Dutton topping the list. Barnaby Joyce is up there, as is Pauline Hanson and Craig Kelly. The top 10 most trusted politicians has also been released, and it's mainly occupied by Labor politicians. Penny Wong is on top of that list, followed by Anthony Albanese. Gladys Berejiklian is in there, even though she had to resign due to investigations over corruption, so not sure what's going on there. I wouldn't actually read too much into this sort of list. It's, it was produced by Roy Morgan Research, but it just suggests that people in government are distrusted and people not in government are trusted by the public. But it's all relative. Trust levels in politicians went up dramatically during the early stages of the pandemic, but now they've gone down to their worst levels ever. And I'm sure that once Labor returns to office, whenever that might be, these figures will swing around. But whatever the case is, it's just not a good sign for the democratic process in Australia. It's all based on trust. The trust that if something goes wrong, a minister resigns. And we have a group of ministers who have lowered the standard so much that we're in chaos and anarchy. And this has been their point. They want to make it ungovernable. They want to destroy the system so that their donors, they're only working for a very small percentage of people. They want it so Gina Reinhart, so Twiggy Forrest, so Jerry Harvey, so all of the usual suspects can lower wages, lower safety, lower taxes and maximise their profits. Well, just on that point, because we've been speculating on that possibility of government just being a little bit too difficult and needing to be reformed, but it's also a case where the performance of the Morrison government isn't terrible just because governing is so difficult, but it's actually by design. And many people have commented that in the wake of the inaction on bushfires from 2020, inactions on the floods, inaction on climate change, the poor vaccination rollout, and in general, completely stuffing up, that it was so bad that it was almost by design. And of course, there is a process that has been documented in the past. And it's a process where governments perform so badly, either by design or just being so reckless and incompetent component that it allows their extreme ideological obsessions to fill in that void and I first came across this in a book by the American author Thomas Frank and it's called The Wrecking Crew that was produced in the early 2010s and that was primarily about the agenda of George W. Bush and his good friend Dick Cheney in the early 2000s and you allow all of your lobbyists into the framework the fraudsters the tricksters the private operators and 
This isn't anything new. David, you've constantly referred to this government's obsession with reducing what government is actually meant to do and its entire agenda to undermine the role of government. So it's probably not so much a case of having the wrong systems in place, but the wrong people within that political system. And they're all there for totally the wrong reasons. They took over the parties. If you look at the recent revelations, which weren't actually new to anyone who'd been looking, that Scott Morrison and Alex Hawke delayed pre-selection in certain seats so they could parachute their own candidates in. If you look at how Dominic Perrottet has behaved in New South Wales with going back on deals he'd made with the moderates about who gets certain seats. And it's what they did in the United States, the far right, the backed by people like the NRA, but the money actually funnels back to things like the Coke industries, not Coca-Cola, K-O-C-H, and other vested interests like that. They go in and they take over small local offices, school boards, library boards. They then build a local profile and change the rules so that their opponents find it harder to get on or get voted for. They then get voted into local councils. They then move into the state legislature and then they finally get into the federal legislature. And you end up with essentially Donald Trump and now Joe Biden, who's against that, but is going to find it very difficult to wind back a lot of the Trump reforms, who may lose the 2024 election. I don't want to make any comment on that at the moment because we're only halfway through, but the 2022 elections in the States may be telling. In Australia, it's a little bit more difficult because... There's a bit more separation between things. But if you look at the mess that a lot of local councils are in, if you look at the way that they manipulate Senate and upper house numbers so that you get absolute nobodies becoming senators and they're just there to pass the vote through, you have, of course, a soft media that doesn't report on any of this or reports on it very little. You've got to keep your eye on all parts of the game. And I know I'm starting to sound like a conspiracy nut here, but it's absolutely true. It's all very well documented. And the facts are that we have these people who are there to destroy the system moving through and actually getting places to where they can do major damage. This is why when you vote, make sure you do not vote them back in. I'm not saying don't vote for a particular party. I'm saying vote for good candidates. That will wipe a lot of parties out but they can reform, they can rebuild. Vote for good candidates. And if we're trying to get the right people in politics or at least increase the options for people to be able to enter politics, it seems that the Australian Electoral Commission isn't doing very much to help out. During the week, the AEC deregistered the Australian Progressives, and we featured them recently as part of our Independence series, and they were deregistered due to a clerical error caused by the Australian Electoral Commission. And that was announced to the whole world that the Australian Progressives have been deregistered. It caused damage to the name of the Australian Progressives. And and since that time, it happened quite quickly, they've been re-registered. But if we're trying to encourage better people into politics, this certainly isn't helping. And perhaps if the Electoral Commission didn't focus so much of its time sending out smarmy messages and abusing the public on its social media accounts, this issue would not have happened. I think the real issue is that it's been death by a thousand cuts. They're understaffed. They're overworked. Of course, the Morrison faction doesn't want elections. 
Uh, I note that this week the Tory party, the Conservative Party in the UK, was able to stop their fixed-term elections, giving Boris Johnson a potential eight more months as Prime Minister. I can absolutely bet that Scott Morrison is trying to work out how to extend his tenure as Prime Minister uh, in a way that is at least semi-legal. The AEC, I don't think, acted in malice. The old saying of when you've got the choice between conspiracy and incompetence, incompetence usually wins. I don't want to be too harsh on them either. They had to audit 30 parties or something, and the mistake was quite breathtaking. They disallowed 80% of members. Now, members get disallowed from the AEC because they can't find a registered voter in the seat that they claim to be in. That's the general thing. Now, and this happens sometimes as a genuine mistake. People say, I'm in the seat of X, but there'd been a redistribution that they weren't aware of and they were in the seat of Y. Sometimes voters uh, have died or they've moved out and not informed head office. There's all that type of thing. They'd gone through an audit once before and came a little bit short through those types of things. The progressives looked at it and fixed it and came back with a few more members. So they were well and truly over the threshold of uh, 1,500 members. When the AEC audited them again, numbers had dropped somehow 80%. Again, a simple mistake. Of course, the progressives were very worried. I'd been speaking to a couple of members over this. They were very worried that the process would take longer than the election would be called and that they'd be forced out of the next election. That hasn't happened, which credit to the AEC for making it a quick and honest process. Again, what devastates me is that the AEC has been for many, many years one of the very best uh, organisations of its type in the world. That it's come to making a silly error like that, I think, says a lot about how this government of records treats its institutions. And this is the party that's supposed to be in favour of Australian institutions. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through YouTube, SoundCloud and Amazon Music, or find us at newpolitics.com.au. And you can now support New Politics through Patreon. And in other political news, the flooding has started up again in northern New South Wales and in Lismore. A few weeks ago, Barnaby Joyce downplayed the first round of flooding in February when he suggested that it was a once in three and a half thousand 
year event and just a natural cycle of weather. Just a few weeks later, we've had our second one in three and a half thousand year event. So I guess Joyce is either bad at mathematics or just playing politics. And this is going to be an ongoing issue during the election campaign. It's going to be very difficult to hide this issue from the electorate. Here's what Scott Morrison said about emergency funding for the floods. I know I've got our critics who say you shouldn't be spending money on helping people during these crises, but we do because we know Australians need it because we know the need is real. Now, this is an absolutely weird thing to say, and it opens up a bit of light into what we were just talking about, that idea of deliberate incompetence. But where are these critics who have been complaining about spending money on people during these crises? People have been complaining about no money being spent on these situations. $4 billion allocated to the victims of bushfires in 2020, and less than 0.1% of those funds have been spent. And there was almost a zero response to the floods in Queensland and northern New South Wales from the federal government government. Now, no one is going to begrudge the spending of government funds on people who have had their livelihoods destroyed and their homes lost because of natural disasters. Now, for sure, there might be government ministers who share this nutcase ideology of Morrison's and they might be the ones who didn't want to spend the money at all. But this is one of the most bizarre things Scott Morrison has ever said. Again, he's not there to help. He's there to obstruct, destroy, change and make government irrelevant. He would love a private rescue team to go in and make a profit. Now, this is precisely where profit is not a good motivator. It's not a good um, ideology and it's not. Profit is good if you're selling things and if you're making certain things. I'm not a total socialist communist, but there are just some things where you can't rely on the market to fix. There's no market that can fix what's happened in Lismore. There's no market that can fix what's happened in southeast Queensland. There's no market that can fix what happened in the Victorian and New South Wales bushfires or the Western Australian bushfires. You just have to go in and fix them and then let the market take over when the market has things that it can do well again. They're either trying to work out how they can profit from this, and that sounds harsh, but it's true, or they've decided that it's not worth it and that people will fix it themselves. And, of course, people can't fix it themselves. The communities have been fantastic from what I hear, but there comes a point where you need something bigger to come in and help. Well, well, I guess everything is now focused on what's happening during the election, and this will be a situation that fluctuates in the background of the election campaign. It will all relate to climate change issues, climate change mitigation, all of those issues and areas that the federal government has failed to look at or address. And within that prism of the federal election, there's quite a few other factors going on as well. There's been pre-selection issues on both sides of politics. Labor has finalised its candidates in all of its winnable seats, but one pre-selection in the seat of Parramatta has raised a few eyebrows. Andrew Charlton is a prominent economist and was an advisor in the Rudd government and was instrumental in Labor's response to the global financial crisis in 2008. And he's the Labor candidate in Parramatta. I think Andrew Charlton is a good choice for Parliament, but the politics of this is absolutely terrible. He lives in the eastern suburbs of Sydney. That's about 30 kilometres away from Parramatta. He said that he'll move to Parramatta if he does win the seat, but they always say this before the election and then it never happens after the election. He's white, he's male. Parramatta is a far more diverse area than Bellevue Hill in the eastern suburbs. And it's that vexed question and a similar situation that 
did arise in the seat of Fowler when Christina Keneally was parachuted into that seat. Should we be trying to get the best people into politics or should we just accept the local party member who's worked all of the local branches for years and years and years? They become the MP and they sit on the backbench and achieve nothing for 20 years. Like that ad for tacos, why can't it be both? And certainly, sometimes you want a high-profile candidate, a national candidate, Peter Garrett, who followed probably the only thing I ever agreed with, Enoch Powell. All political careers end in failure because that's the nature. And that was Peter Garrett. In the Royal Commission set up to destroy him, he came out very well. He was parachuted into that seat in a sense, but he lived in the area. Malcolm Turnbull, to a different extent, again, a nationally known figure who had a reputation. And again, his political career ended in failure too, for slightly different reasons, but nonetheless, reasons that uh, we don't really need to go into at this point. I think you've got to be careful. I think that if there isn't a strong local candidate, that's when you start to look at parachuting people in. You don't want to waste your good people because not all national figures, no matter how qualified they seem to be, work out for all kinds of reasons. Politics is a brutal game and having good strategic skills, for example, uh, having good policy ideas may not be enough in the cut and thrust of day-to-day politics. That also needs to be reformed somehow. I think by getting better people in a lot of this will solve itself, to be quite honest. And I don't want to sound idealistic here. I'm realistic. But we've been dealing with a very, very nasty group of people on both sides of politics over the last 20 years. And by nasty, I mean people who aren't working on behalf of the greater good, who are just in it to win. Labor is seemingly reforming, and all the signs point to that. The Liberal Party needs a long period in opposition where they can just wipe out those who aren't there for the good of the country, the party, and the seat that they're in. But yeah, I think that it's okay to parachute in the occasional high-profile candidate, provided one, they're suited to the job and are good, and also that there's not a strong local candidate. Now, all of these pre-selection issues on the Labor side, they just seem to pale in significance when compared to the final speech made by the Liberal Senator, Conchetta Fierravanti wells and we can safely say that she's not a fan of Scott Morrison's. He is adept at running with the foxes and hunting with the hounds, lacking the moral compass and having no conscience. His actions conflict with his portrayal as a man of faith. He has used his so-called faith as a marketing advantage. By now, you might be getting the picture that Morrison is not interested in the rules-based order. It is his way or the highway, an autocrat, a bully who has no moral compass. In my public life, I have met ruthless people. Morrison tops the list, followed closely by Hawke. Morrison is not fit to be Prime Minister, and Hawke certainly is not fit to be a minister. And this all came about because she was pushed down to the number three position on the Liberal Party Senate ticket in New South Wales, which means that she won't be re-elected. And she was replaced by Jim Molan, a clearly inadequate candidate, 
also known as the Butcher of Fallujah for his role in Iraq as an Australian military commander. Now, I don't want to be ageist, but he is 71 and you'd think that he'd be looking at a few retirement options at this stage. But you just have to wonder how much of this would be coming out if Fiera Vanti Wells wasn't losing out in a pre-selection battle. Normally, when this happens to senators, when they're losing a pre-selection just before an election, and that's exactly what happened to the Labor senator, Lisa Singh, in the 2019 federal election. They usually have a public whinge about what's happening, and that's usually for good reason. They have a go at the party, and then they leave in good grace. But this is on a completely different level. Fiera Vanti-Wells, she's accused Scott Morrison and his henchman, Alex Hawke, of corruption, destroying the Liberal Party. She provided a free character assessment of Scott Morrison. And it's not often that you hear someone on your own side saying that you're not fit to be Prime Minister. So Morrison just dismissed this speech as Fiera Vanti-Wells just being disappointed. But this seems to be a pattern with Morrison. Many Liberal Party women have made allegations against Morrison, but he condescends, he mansplains a little bit, and then he pushes the issue to the side. But all of this hasn't completely drowned out the budget news, but it's all gone pretty close to derailing the entire campaign. Now, I think we should say that we're not losing a great candidate in Conchetta. She hasn't done very much, and her judgment may be impaired. I think I'll say that. That doesn't invalidate much of what she said. And a lot of what she said has been said before by people like Julia Banks, by people like Brittany Higgins, by people like Barnaby Joyce, Gladys Berejiklian. These aren't dangerous left figures. These are people who are very senior on the right. Again, it goes down to party reform. It's well documented that Morrison cheated his way into the seat using his contacts at News Corp, who he bribed with a lot of Tourism Australian advertising money, it seems, allegedly, who then went behind him. And Morrison won the seat when it should have been Michael Tauk by a long shot. Tauk was destroyed politically. And I note too, Senator Ferry Avanti Wells suggested that they'd promised him another go in another seat if he'd throw his numbers behind Morrison, which of course never happened. And of course, he may not have wanted it. And I don't know how good a candidate he would have been. I can pretty much guarantee that he'd be a better candidate than Scott Morrison, but then that's pretty much the combined phone books of all the cities of Australia who would make a better candidate than Scott Morrison. (laughs) I don't see where he goes from here. I I don't think there's any coming back. And it's not as if it's one embittered where they could safely argue, oh, yep, she's embittered. Of course, she lost the seat. She deserved to lose the seat and give all these reasons as to why. She's the latest in a long line of people who are saying relatively consistent things, often in private and from different factions and from different... It's not coming from the same group of people, which... And even Morrison has not even tried that line of approach. He has uh, just basically admitted that she's embittered and we don't listen to her, which I think he's tried nine times now. And we referred to this earlier in this episode, but Josh Frydenberg is in a lot of trouble in his seat of Kuyong. So what do you do? You get bigger billboards and the streets of Kuyong seem to be getting more billboards with Frydenberg's face on it. And This is not the sort of stuff that you do if you're not worried about your own seat, but this is also going to bring about other problems. Morrison has been asked not to campaign in marginal Liberal Party seats. That in itself is a problem because you can't really have the Prime Minister restricted in where he can campaign during 
an election. But these candidates are also asking for Josh Frydenberg to appear in their campaigns instead. But he's got a battle going on in his own seat. So that's going to create quite a few issues there. Liberal Party candidates such as Dave Sharma, they've removed all of their Liberal Party paraphernalia and references from their campaign material and they're adopting teal colours, which is the same colours as most of the independents that are campaigning against Liberal Party MPs and Dave was sporting a nice looking teal coloured tie but I don't think this is going to be enough. People are attracted to authenticity in their politicians. We heard Scott Morrison talking a lot about that and trying to be someone else or trying to make people believe that you're someone that you're not, that just isn't going to work. Now, I know that Scott Morrison has been the master in being a chameleon and trying to present himself in all sorts of different ways, but all of this is being found out by the public and it might have worked in 2019, but it doesn't seem to be going to work in 2022. He had his one trick that he's used fairly consistently which is present affable and then knife everyone in your way. He came to the last election presenting as a somewhat unknown and reluctant candidate. He's blown his credibility there, so I don't know what's going to happen. And there's just been the one poll released during the week, and that was the Morgan poll, which showed a drop for Labor Party support in the two-party preferred vote. So it's currently at 55.5%, and that's a drop of 2.5%, as opposed to the 44.5% for the coalition. And Morgan has attributed this to the issues surrounding bullying of women in the Labor Party that's been reported in the media over the past two weeks, rightly or wrongly. But all of this is within the margin of error, and there could be a whole lot of other issues involved, but we will have a clearer picture of that over the coming weeks. And the speculation now is that the election will be announced over the weekend for May the 7th, but there's still a few seats without candidates for the Liberal Party, and they probably want to push the budget just that little bit more and wait to see what the electoral response is to the budget in opinion polls. And Scott Morrison has also cancelled several media appearances in the wake of the allegations made by Conchetta Fieravanti Wells, so he'll probably want to create a bit of distance from all of those comments, but whatever the case, there shouldn't be too much longer before the election is announced. Rumours are that it'll be uh, first weekend in April where it's announced. I think it's still he's still trying to get his candidates into place. Given how all the polls are looking, a lot of these candidates are not going to progress to a career in Australian politics at this election by the looks of things. That's it for this episode of New Politics. Thanks for listening in. If you'd like to support our style of journalism and commentary, please make a donation at our website at newpolitics.com.au. We don't beg, plead, beseech or gaslight you about journalism coming to an end. We just keep it very simple. If you like what we do, please send some support our way. It keeps our commitment to independent journalism ticking along. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks for listening in and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.